Chapter 17, Part 1 of The Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trail to Nanesoshi, Part 1. When Shefford awoke next morning and sat up on his bed of pinion boughs, the dawn had broken cold, with a ruddy gold brightness under the trees. Nas Te Bega and Lassiter were busy around a campfire. The Mustangs were haltered nearby. Jane Witherstein combed out her long, tangled tresses with a crude wooden comb, and Faye Larkin was not in sight. As she had been missing from the group at sunset, so she was now at sunrise. Shefford went out to take his last look at Surprise Valley. On the evening before, the valley had been a place of dusky red veils and purple shadows, and now it was pink-walled, clear and rosy, and green and white, with wonderful shafts of gold slanting down from the notched eastern rim. Fay stood on the promontory, and Shefford did not break the spell of her silent farewell to her wild home. A strange emotion abided with him, and he knew he would always, all his life, regret leaving Surprise Valley. Then the Indian called. Come, Fay, said Shefford gently. And she turned away with dark, haunted eyes and a white, still face. The somber Indian gave a silent gesture for Shefford to make haste. While they had breakfast, the Mustangs were saddled and packed, and soon all was in readiness for the flight. Fay was given Nakyal, Jane, the saddled horse Shefford had ridden, and Lassiter, the Indian's roan. Shefford and Naste Bega were to ride the blanketed Mustangs, and the sixth and last one bore the pack. Naste Bega set off, leading his horse, the others of the party lined in behind, with Shefford at the rear. Naste Bega led at a brisk trot, and sometimes, on level stretches of ground, at an easy canter, and Shefford had a grim realization of what this flight was going to be for these three fugitives, now so unaccustomed to riding. Jane and Lassiter, however, needed no watching, and they showed they had never forgotten how to manage a horse. The Indian back-trailed yesterday's path for an hour, then headed west to the left, and entered a low pass. All parts of this plateau country looked alike, and Shefford was at some pains to tell the difference of this strange ground from that which he had been over. In another hour they got out of the rugged, broken rock to the wind-worn and smooth, shallow canyon. Shefford calculated that they were coming to the end of the plateau. The low walls slanted lower, the canyon made a turn. Naste Bega disappeared, and then the others of the party. When Shefford turned the corner of wall, he saw a short strip of bare, rocky ground with only sky beyond. The Indian and his followers had halted in a group. Shefford rode to them, halted himself, and in one sweeping glance realized the meaning of their silent gaze. But immediately Naste Bega started down, and the Mustangs, without word or touch, followed him. Shefford, however, lingered on the promontory. His gaze seemed impelled and held by things afar, 
the great yellow and purple corrugated world of distance, now on a level with his eyes. He was drawn by the beauty and the grandeur of that scene, and transfixed by the realization that he had dared to venture to find a way through this vast, wild, and upflung fastness. He kept looking afar, sweeping the three-quartered circle of horizon till his judgment of distance was confounded and his sense of proportion dwarfed one moment and magnified the next. Then he withdrew his fascinated gaze to adopt the Indian's method of studying unlimited spaces in the desert, to look with slow, contracted eyes from near to far. His companions had begun to zigzag down a long slope, bare of rock, with yellow gravel patches showing between the scant strips of green, and here and there a scrub cedar. Half a mile down the slope merged into green level, but close, keen gaze made out this level to be a rolling plain, growing darker green, with blue lines of ravines and thin, undefined spaces that might be mirage. Miles and miles of it swept and relied and heaved to lose its waves in apparent darker levels. A round red rock stood isolated, marking the end of the barren plain. And farther on were other rocks, all isolated, all of different shapes. They resembled huge grazing cattle. But as Shefford gazed, and his sight gained strength from steady holding it to separate features, these rocks were strangely magnified. They grew and grew into mounds, castles, domes, crags, great red, wind-carved buttes. One by one they drew his gaze to the wall of upflung rock. He seemed to see a thousand domes of a thousand shapes and colors, and among them a thousand blue clefts, each one a little mark in his sight, yet which he knew was a canyon. So far he gained some idea of what he saw. But beyond this wide area of curved lines rose another wall, dwarfing the lower, dark red, horizon-long, magnificent in frowning boldness, and because of its limitless deceiving surfaces, breaks and lines incomprehensible to the sight of man. Away to the eastward began a winding, ragged blue line, looping back upon itself and then winding away again, growing wider and bluer. This line was the San Juan Canyon. Where was Joe Lake at that moment? Had he embarked yet on the river? Did that blue line, so faint, so deceiving, hold him and the boat? Almost it was impossible to believe. Shefford followed the blue line all its length, a hundred miles, he fancied, down toward the west, where it joined a dark, purple, shadowy cleft. And this was the Grand Canyon of the Colorado. Shefford's eyes swept along with that winding mark farther and farther to the west, round to the left, until the cleft, growing larger and coming closer, losing its deception, was seen to be a wild and winding canyon. Still further to the left, as he swung in fascinated gaze, it split the wonderful wall, a vast plateau now with great red peaks and yellow mesas. The canyon was full of purple smoke. It turned, it gaped, it lost itself, and showed again in that chaos of a million cliffs. 
and then farther on it became again a cleft, a purple line, at last to fail entirely into deceiving distance. Shefford imagined there was no scene in all the world equal to that. The tranquility of lesser spaces was not here manifest. Sound, movement, life seemed to have no fitness here. Ruin was there and desolation and decay. The meaning of the ages was flung at him, and a man became nothing. When he had gazed at the San Juan Canyon, he had been appalled at the nature of Joe Lake's Herculean task. He had lost hope, faith. The thing was not possible. But when Shefford gazed at that sublime and majestic wilderness, in which the Grand Canyon was only a dim line, he strangely lost his terror, and something else came to him from across the shining spaces. If Nas Te Bega led them safely down to the river, if Joe Lake met them at the mouth of Nanesosha Boko, if they survived the rapids of that terrible gorge, then Shefford would have to face his soul and the meaning of this spirit that breathed on the wind. He urged his mustang to the descent of the slope, and as he went down, slowly drawing nearer to the other fugitives, his mind alternated between the strange intimation of faith, the subtle uplift of his spirit, and the growing gloom and shadow in his love for Fay Larkin. Not that he loved her less, but more, a possible god hovering near him, like the Indian's spirit stepped on the trail, made his soul the darker for Fay's crime. And he saw with light, with deeper sadness, with sterner truth. More than once the Indian turned on his mustang to look up the slope and the light flashed from his dark, somber face. Shefford instinctively looked back himself, and then he realized the unconscious motive of the action. Deep within him there had been a premonition of certain pursuit, and the Indian's reiterated backward glance had at length brought the feeling upward. Thereafter, as they descended, Shefford gradually added to his already wrought emotions a mounting anxiety. No sign of a trail showed where the base of the slope rolled out to meet the green plain. The earth was gravelly, with dark patches of heavy silt, almost like cinders, and round black rocks, flinty and glassy, cracked away from the hoofs of the mustangs. There was a level bench a mile wide, then a ravine, and then an ascent, and after that, rounded ridge and ravine, one after the other like huge swells of a monstrous sea. Indian paintbrush vied in its scarlet hue with the deep magenta of cactus. There was no sage, soapweed and meager grass, and a bunch of cactus here and there lent the green to that barren, and it was green only at a distance. Naste Bega kept on a steady, even trot. The sun climbed, the wind rose, and whipped dust from under the mustangs. Shefford looked back often, and the farther out in the plain he reached, the higher loomed the plateau they had descended, and as he faced ahead again, the lower sank the red-domed and castled horizon to the fore. The ravines became deeper, with dry rock bottoms, and the high ridge tops sharper, with outcroppings of yellow, crumbling ledges. Once across the central depression of that plain, a gradual ascent became evident, 
and the round rocks grew cleaner in sight, began to rise, shine, and grow. And thereafter, every slope brought them nearer. The sun was straight overhead and hot when Nas Te Bega halted the party under the first lonely scrub cedar. They all dismounted to stretch their limbs and rest the horses. It was not a talkative group. Lassiter's comments on the never-ending green plain elicited no response. Jane Witherstein looked afar with the past in her eyes. Shefford felt Fay's wistful glance and could not meet it. Indeed, he seemed to want to hide something from her. The Indian bent a falcon gaze on the distant slope, and Shefford did not like that intent searching, steadfast watchfulness. Suddenly, Nas Te Bega stiffened and whipped the halter he held. Ugh, he exclaimed. All eyes followed the direction of his dark hand. Puffs of dust rose from the base of the long slope they had descended. Tiny dark specks moved with the pace of a snail. Shad, added the Indian. I expected it, said Shefford, darkly as he rose. And who's Shad? drawled Lassiter in his cool, slow speech. Briefly, Shefford explained. And then, looking at Nas Te Bega, he added, The hardest riding outfit in the country. We can't get away from them. Jane Witherstein was silent, but Fay uttered a low cry. Shefford did not look at either of them. The Indian began swiftly to tighten the saddle cinches of his roan, and Shefford did likewise for Nakyal. Then Shefford drew his rifle out of the saddle sheath and Joe Lake's big guns from the saddlebag. Here, Lassiter, maybe you haven't forgotten how to use these, he said. The old gunman started as if he had seen ghosts. His hands grew claw-like as he reached for the guns. He threw open the cylinders, spilled out the shells, snapped back the cylinders. Then he went through motions too swift for Shefford to follow. But Shefford heard the hammers falling so swiftly they blended their clicks almost in one sound. Lassiter reloaded the guns with a speed comparable with the other actions. A remarkable transformation had come over him. He did not seem the same man. The mild eyes had changed. The long, shadowy, sloping lines were tense cords, and there was a cold, ashy shade on his face. Twelve years, he muttered to himself, I dropped them old guns back there where I rolled the rock. Twelve years. Shefford realized the twelve years were as if they had never been. And he would rather have had this old gunman with him than a dozen ordinary men. The Indians spoke rapidly in Navajo, saying that once in the rocks they were safe. Then, after another look at the distant dust puffs, he wheeled his mustang. It was doubtful if the party could have kept near him had they been responsible for the gait of their mounts. The fact was that the way the Indian called to his mustangs or some leadership in the one road drew the others to a like trot or climb or canter. For a long time, Shefford did not turn round. He knew what to expect. And when he did turn, he was startled at the gain made by the pursuers but he was encouraged as well by the looming, red, rounded peaks 
seemingly now so close. He could see the dark splits between the sloping curved walls, the pinion patches in the amphitheater, under the circled walls. That was a wild place they were approaching, and once in there he believed pursuit would be useless. However, they were miles still to go, and those hard-riding devils behind made alarming decrease in the intervening distance. Shefford could see the horses plainly now, how they made the dust fly. He counted up to six, and then the dust and moving line caused the others to be indistinguishable. At last, only a long, gently rising slope separated the fugitives from that labyrinthine network of wildly carved rock. But it was the clear air that made the distance seem short. Mile after mile the Mustangs climbed, and when they were perhaps halfway across the last slope to the rocks, the first horse of the pursuers mounted to the level behind. In a few moments the whole band was strung out in sight. Nas Te Bega kept his Mustang at a steady walk, in spite of the gaining pursuers. There came a point, however, when the Indian, reaching comparatively level ground, put his mount to a swinging canter. The other Mustangs broke into the same gait. It became a race, then, with a couple of miles between fugitives and pursuers only imperceptibly lessened. Nas Te Bega had saved his Mustangs, and Shad had ridden his to the limit. Shefford kept looking back, gripping his rifle, hoping it would not come to a fight, yet slowly losing the reluctance. Sage began to show on the slope, and other kinds of brush and cedars straggled everywhere. The great rocks loomed closer, the red color mixed with yellow, and the slopes lengthening out, not so steep, yet infinitely longer than they had seemed at a distance. Shefford ceased to feel the dry wind in his face. They were already in the lee of the wall. He could see the rock squirrels scampering to their holes. The mustangs valiantly held to the gate, and at last the Indian disappeared between two rounded corners of cliff. The others were close behind. Shefford wheeled once more. Shad and his gang were a mile in the rear, but coming fast despite winded horses. Shefford rode around the wall into a widening space thick with cedars. It ended in a bare slope of smooth rock. Here the Indian dismounted. When the others came up with him, he told them to lead their horses and follow. Then he began the ascent of the rock. It was smooth and hard, though not slippery. There was not a crack. Shefford did not see a broken piece of stone. Naste Bega climbed straight up for a while, and then wound around a swell, to turn this way and that, always going up. Shefford began to see similar mounds of rock all around him, of every shape that could be called a curve. There were yellow domes far above, and small red domes far below. Ridges ran from one hill of rock to another. There were no abrupt breaks but holes and pits and caves were everywhere, and occasionally, deep down, an amphitheater green with cedar and pinion. The Indian appeared to have a clear idea of where he wanted to go, though there was no vestige of a trail on those bare slopes. At length, Shefford was high enough 
to see back upon the plain, but the pursuers were no longer in sight. Naste Bega led to the top of that wall, only to disclose to his followers another and higher wall beyond, with a ridged, bare, wild, and scalloped depression between. Here footing began to be precarious for both man and beast. When the ascent of the second wall began, it was necessary to zigzag up, slowly and carefully, taking advantage of every level bulge or depression. They must have consumed half an hour mounting the slope to the summit. Once there, Shefford drew a sharp breath with both backward and forward glances. Shad and his gang in a single file showed dark upon the bare stone ridge behind, and to the fore there twisted and dropped and curved the most dangerous slopes Shefford had ever seen. The fugitives had reached the height of a stone wall, of the divide, and many of the drops upon this side were perpendicular and too steep to see the bottom. Naste Bega led along the ridge top and then started down, following the waves in the rock. He came out upon a rounded promontory from which there could not have been any turning of a horse. The long slant leading down was at an angle. Shefford declared impossible for the animals. Yet the Indians started down. His mustang needed urging, but at last edged upon the steep descent. Shefford and the others had to hold back and wait. It was thrilling to see the intelligent mustang. He did not step. He slid his forehoofs a few inches at a time and kept directly behind the Indian. If he fell, he would knock Naste Bega off his feet, and they would both roll down together. There was no doubt in Shefford's mind that the Mustang knew this as well as the Indian. Foot by foot they worked down to a swelling bulge, and here Naste Bega left his Mustang and came back for the pack horse. It was even more difficult to get this beast down. Then the Indian called for Lassiter and Jane and Fay to come down. Shefford began to keep a sharp lookout behind and above. He did not see how the three fared on the slope, but evidently there was no mishap. Naste Bega mounted the slope again, and at the moment sight of Shad's dark bays silhouetted against the sky caused Shefford to call out, We've got to hurry. The Indian led one Mustang and called to the others. Shefford stepped close behind. They went down in single file, inch by inch, foot by foot, and safely reached the comparative level below. Shad's gang are riding their horses up and down these walls, exclaimed Shefford. Sure, replied Lassiter. Both the women were silent. Naste Bega led the way swiftly to the right. He rounded a huge dome, climbed a low rolling ridge, descended and ascended, and came out upon the rim of a steep-walled amphitheater. Along the rim was a yard-wide level, with the chasm to the left and steep slope to the right. There was no time to flinch at the danger, when even a greater danger menaced from the rear. Naste Bega led, and his mustang kept at his heels. One misstep would have plunged the animal to his death, but he was sure-footed, and his confidence helped the others. At the apex of the curve, the only course led away from the rim, and here there was no level. 
four of the Mustangs slipped and slid down the smooth rock till they stopped in a shallow depression. It cost time to get them out, to straighten pack and saddles. Shefford thought he heard a yell in the rear, but he could not see anything of the gang. They rounded this precipice only to face a worse one. Shefford's nerve was sorely tried when he saw steep slants everywhere, all apparently leading down into chasms, and no place a man, let alone a horse, could put a foot with safety. Nevertheless, the imperturbable Indian never slackened his pace. Always he appeared to find a way, and he never had to turn back. His winding course, however, did not now cover much distance in a straight line, and herein lay the greatest peril. Any moment Shad and his men might come within range. Upon a particularly tedious and dangerous slide of Rocky Hill, the fugitives lost so much time that Shefford grew exceedingly alarmed. Still, they accomplished it without accident, and their pursuers did not heave in sight. Perhaps they were having trouble in a bad place. The afternoon was waning. The red sun hung low above the yellow mesa to the left, and there was a perceptible shading of light. End of chapter 17, part 1